But anyway, it's wonderful to be under the spout where the glory comes out. And I love to hear Rhonda sing. Do you like to hear Rhonda sing? Yeah, if you don't, don't say it around me, okay? I really don't. Thank you. I tell people when Rhonda sings, she makes it sound uh, awfully simple. And when I sing, I make it sound simply awful. And uh, so, but anyway, Rhonda and I, we have the time of our life everywhere we go. We're not newlyweds. We're not nearly deads. We're newlyweds. And um, we're like two runaway teenagers. We are having the time of our life. And we have never enjoyed life any more than we are enjoying it now. And uh, we just have a wonderful time. You know, I was married uh, 39 years to a wonderful Christian lady. She died with cancer. Rhonda was married 35 years to a wonderful, godly, independent Baptist preacher. He died with a heart attack. Neither of us thought we'd ever get married, but uh, we did. And uh, we are as happy as we've ever been in our lives. By the way, uh, I never mentioned this, but I wrote a little book called The Christian Second Marriage. And I have some of them with me. Make sure the preacher, I already gave you one, didn't I? Okay. Um, if he wants another or two, save them out. Otherwise, the others will let go at the end of the service. I don't think we have, a, what, 10 of them or so? And, uh, but then I have another book I'll tell you about at the end of the service, or the pastor will tell you about it uh, at the end of the service. But anyway, um, we, uh, so the book, The Christian Second Marriage, is based on the experience that we had in transition from one marriage to another. You'll be surprised at many of the things that are in that book. It's practical, down where the rubber meets the road kind of information that you need if you are in a second marriage, or if your spouse has died and you're anticipating maybe another marriage, or if your spouse has died and you're not anticipating another marriage, uh, you'll, you'll want that book. Uh, and uh, you'll, you'll get a lot of uh, great wisdom about things that you never thought of before in your life and how to make it work. The book was not written for people that are divorced and remarried, but there's a lot of good stuff in there for people that are in a second marriage that for, uh, when the first situation was uh, a divorce. And so you'll find some helpful things in there at any rate. Uh, how children figure into the marriage, and this, that, and the other, from previous marriages and so forth. Uh, you, you'll enjoy it, and you'll want to get that. And uh, so Rhonda and I are having the time of our life. So uh, I was married. My, the Lord took my wife. And I'm not like one fellow who said, I was married 10 years, and the Lord took her to heaven. And then I was married another 15 years, and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. But then God took her. And now I've been married to this lady for two years, and God can take her just any time he wants to. And I, I'm not that way. Trust me, I'm not that way. And uh, so anyway... Um, by the way, I'm thrilled to see you back tonight. We've got about as many people here tonight as we did this morning, and I'm thrilled about that. And I have a dream. I have a dream to see this building full. This is a beautiful building. My goodness, you could, you could put two to three, well, you could put three times what we've got here in the building tonight. And you might have to use a little of the balcony, but probably not. And we just need to help get with the pastor. Let's catch the vision and rattle doors and reach people and invite people and get them in here. Uh, churches aren't built by just sitting around wishing. It, they're built by people contact, personal contact. And everywhere you go, uh, we, we just came out of revival in uh, Jefferson City, Missouri 
we were staying at the motel. We went in to eat breakfast like we normally do in the breakfast room. And a lady was there, and I spoke to her and invited her to this service. She was the one that took care of the breakfast thing. And I invited her to the service. My, then my wife got to talking to her, and business picked up. And she came to service. She came two or three services in a row, wasn't it, Rhonda? And, and uh, we believe we're going to get her anchored in there. Then uh, we were out for uh, dinner uh, or for, uh, yeah, dinners at noon to me. I'm a southern boy. You have breakfast, dinner, and supper. You know, supper's in the evening, dinner's in the middle of the day. And uh, by the way, that's biblical. The Bible speaks of supper. Uh, that's in the evening, uh, and I don't have time to develop that doctrine, but uh, at any rate, uh, so we were in a restaurant, and I pass out tracks everywhere I go, and uh, I, I just, when I walk through a restaurant, I'll say, uh, let me give you something to read. Here's a little gospel track. I'll give it to three or four people at this table. There was a young um, waitress um, I think she, what was she, Rhonda? 35, 40? Yeah, she looked 30. She looked 25 or 30, but she was 40. She had been there waiting on the people, and I passed a track out to everybody, and I started to walk away. She chased me down and said, can I have one of those? I said, yes, ma'am. Very sharp-looking young lady, and I gave her a track, and I said, do you know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven? I'm not sure. I said, you know, if you had a break, I could show you how to be saved. And she said, let me finish this table. I'll take a break. And I went aside, sat down and talked with her. She was in church that night. Now, you'd be surprised what a little bit of people relations will do to help you build a church. And churches aren't built automatic. Let me tell you this, and then I'll shut up and get to preaching here. Did you know, uh, how many of you know the name Walter Beryl? Raise your hand. Anybody here ever heard the name Walter Beryl? Well, let me tell you who he is. You've seen him probably and don't know it. If you've ever seen the film Sheffy, you ever saw the film Chevy? Do you remember that when the camp meeting was going on, there was a preacher preaching behind the pulpit that had a handlebar mustache, and he was preaching while Sheffy went up on the hill to pray for the meeting. That preacher was preaching Isaiah 53, and that preacher's name was Walter Beryl. We had him come every year at our church, and uh, Walter Beryl told me this story. He was, he was an old Bob Jones graduate back in the day, but he told me this story. He said, I was preaching at Tennessee Temple College when Dr. Lee Robertson was there, and he said, after a chapel service, a young man came up to me, and uh, he said, uh, uh, Brother Beryl, he said, I said, yes, sir. He said, gave me his name, he said, I'm going to be graduating in another year. And I was wondering, could you recommend me to a church? I want to pastor a church. And Brother Burrell said, well, son, I, I don't know you. I, I, I don't know what I could say about you because I don't know anything about you. He said, well, let me tell you what I'm looking for in a church. He said, and Brother Bill said, have you ever pastored before? No, never. Have you ever been an assistant pastor? No, never been an assistant pastor. But he said, let me tell you what I want in a church. Number one, I'd like a church running at least 800. That was the first thing out of his mouth. And then he said, I would like a church where everybody goes soul winning. Everybody. 800 people, all of them go soul winning every week. He said, I would like a church where everybody tithed. Uh, he said, uh, uh, that way we won't have any financial problems. Now, serious. This is serious. As a mortician, this is what he said. He said, I would like a church where there is no problems. 
you know, no strife, no, nobody's, uh, you know, upset over anything or no. And um, uh, he just went on with his list. And Brother Burrell, you'd have to know him to appreciate that he's a very serious-minded type guy, and he listened very intensively. And when he got done, he said, I'm just wondering if you could recommend me to a church like that. And Brother Burrell said, no, sir, I could. I really could. And he looked so downcast, he says, why couldn't you recommend me? He said, son, I've been an evangelist for 47 years. But if I ever find a church like that, I'm taking it myself. You ain't getting it. I'm taking it. <laughs> there is no such animal in the woods. But there are some great churches, and you can help this one be a great church. I'm open to Genesis 13 in your Bibles. Find your place now. Genesis 13. And uh, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. And I've got so many, many wonderful things I want to preach to you tonight. And you can thank your God that I got settled which one to preach. Because if I hadn't, you'd be here a long time tonight. And uh, so here we go. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I don't want to throw you into shock. Some of you young men ought to listen to this. But did you know that I ne I've never known a time in my life when I ever got called to preach? I know I'm called, but I never, had, I never had a time when I felt God was dealing with me to preach. I'd been saved about three days, and I got an invitation to preach on a street corner with a bunch of college students. And I told Buddy Turner, who invited me, said, I can't do it. He said, why not? I said, I'm not a preacher. He said, what do you mean you're not a preacher? I said, I've never been called to preach. He said, we're going to be on the courthouse square, and it, right up the street is a bunch of bars. And as we step up one by one and preach about a five-minute sermon, those drunks will be coming out of the bars, walking down the sidewalk. He said, let me ask you a question. Do you think they will ask you for your ordination papers? I said, no, I doubt they would. He said, well, let me ask you this question. Do you think God would care if you stepped out there on the corner, opened your big mouth, and told him you got saved and how you got saved? Do you think that would offend God? I said, no, I don't think it would. He said, well, do it. And I did it, and I enjoyed it, and then had another opportunity, and I enjoyed that. I don't know of a time in my life I was ever called to preach. I know I'm called uh, for several reasons I don't want to get into now, but but I don't know of a time I was ever called to preach. Do something. Do something. Don't wait for God. Uh, you know, uh, I heard uh, a missionary say to the Philippines years ago, he was having a hard time getting people to feel, and he said, you know, you say, well, I've never been called to the mission field. He said, you give me your telephone number. I'll call you, and uh, I'll get you called. I'm open to Genesis 13. We need to get rolling here. Genesis 13, verse number 1. And I'll use this red microphone. And it is not on, but I imagine that uh, you'll turn it on. All right, we're on now. Woo! Are you okay? Is everybody all right? Am I too loud? Not, not too loud. All right, I'll take your word for it. So here we go. Genesis 13, verse number 1. I'm going to read a very familiar passage of Scripture and preach a very unfamiliar sermon. I'm going to read a f familiar passage of Scripture and show you something that I preached what I'd preached on this subject for years, but I'd never seen the truth I'm about to share with you. And here it is from Genesis 13, verse number 1. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him into the south. Do you notice Abram was very intelligent? He went south. He did not go north. He went south. 
they pick on me for being a southerner, but, but until I explain to them how all those people got down south to start with, and in case you never read it in your history book, when our forefathers came over on the Mayflower, somebody stuck up a sign and said, go south, my brother, and everybody that could read did. Oh, boy, I'm in trouble now. Here we go. Everybody stand up, and I'll read the rest of it, all right? Everybody stand up, stand up for Jesus. So Abraham went south, and he and Lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and gold, verse 5. And Lot also which went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together. Now here's a key. You won't see it as you read over it, but here's a key to the text I'm going to be using. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. And verse 8, And Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take to the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If thou depart to the right hand, I'll go to the left. Verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. And where is he looking? He's looking toward Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse number 11, And Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Verse 12, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. For years, I preached that Lot went to Sodom because he got his eyes on things. That's not true. I'm about to show you why he went to Sodom, why he went to the world, why he pitched his tent toward the likes of Egypt, Sodom. I'm about to show you that money and substance had if anything, very little, nothing to do with why he went to Sodom. You see, in the chapter before this, they went down into the world. They went down into the land of Zor. And there's where they got rich because they had defected from the perfect will of God. But he came out of Sodom. Now here he goes into Sodom and he don't come out. But why did he go? I'm about to share you with you the truth of why he went. You're going to see it in your Bible very clear. And when you see it, you'll say, I never saw that before. And you'll take a life's lesson that'll go with you for the rest of your life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you'll bless us now and be with us in a wonderful way. How great to be under the spout where the glory comes out. How great to be in God's house on a Sunday evening like this. Lord, these people could be doing a lot of things. These people could be running around everywhere enjoying some uh, something it, 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 from ice cream shops to, to down at the ocean or wherever. Lord, thank you for what what you've done for us to bring us together in this meeting, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, please. Abraham took with him Lot when he left Ur the Chaldees to go out and be a vagabond for God. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. And when he left his fertile ground and rich home, he took with him his nephew Lot. 
Lot was a man of God. Lot walked with God because we know he did because you couldn't walk with Uncle Abraham without walking with God. Lot was a holy man. You, you couldn't walk with Uncle Abraham without living a holy life. As a matter of fact, Uncle Abraham wouldn't have allowed it. He wouldn't have wanted you that close to him if you didn't live a holy life. I, I mean, Lot also looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Uh, just like Abraham did. Lot walked with Abraham. We cut Lot too short. When, you know, I preached a sermon uh, this morning. Amnon had a friend. I said, you show me your friends. I'll show you what you are. You soon shall be. Lot wanted to be with Abraham. And he left all this world's possessions behind to go with Uncle Abraham to be out there as a vagabond, living as a nomad in a tent. And he chose to do it. Abraham didn't make him go. He chose to do it. He was living the life just like Abraham was living the life. But here's the thing. They came to a point that the circumstances of life did not allow them to dwell together anymore. Their substance was too great so that they could not dwell together. And Uncle Abraham, having the spirit of Christ, came to Lot and said, Lot, our herdmen are fussing and fighting over which one's going to get the pasture land. We cannot be this close together. There's plenty of pasture for everybody, but not in one place. So we're going to have to separate ourselves, the one from the other. If you go to the right hand, I'll go to the left. If, and uh, if you go to the left, I'll depart from the right. You choose first, and whatever you want, you may take, and then I'll take what's left. And here's what he said in the verse here, and I just read it to you, and I want you to look at it again here. Uh, the t uh, Verse number 9 of the chapter of the text. Here's what he said. Is not the whole land before thee? Here's the two words. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou will take to the left hand, I'll go to the right. If thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, wait a minute. Immediately, immediately, look at the next verse. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. He looked the wrong direction in the very next verse. He looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah in the very next verse. Now, I would not propose to you that he understood all the evil that would overtake him right at first, but he went the wrong direction immediately when Uncle Abraham said, we can't walk together anymore. Separate thyself. He went down. He was living the life, but he was living the life that, was, that he was drawing from Uncle Abraham. You see, Abraham was walking with God Lot was walking with Abraham. Abraham had broke through and found out what God wanted him to do. Lot had broke through with a desire to walk with Uncle Abraham. Lot wanted what was right. And Lot was living the life, praying the prayer, surrendering his life to that which was right. But all of that inspiration and drive and motivation and spiritual impact he was not producing it. Uncle Abraham was producing it, and he was drawing it from Uncle Abraham. Literally, he was a parasite Christian. I'm telling you something. Once you see, and that's the reason. He walked with God all that time since they left Ur of the Chaldees. But as soon as Abraham said, we can't walk together anymore, boom, he was a, he was a dead fish in the water. He was history. He went down. He was plugged into Abraham, but he was not plugged into God. 
And here's the title of the sermon and the question I want to ask you right now. Where are you plugged in? The wisdom and the holiness and the prayer and the dedication and the vision that Lot had was drawn from Uncle Abraham. And when he got unplugged, when he couldn't walk with Abraham anymore, he was unplugged. He could not walk with God because his source had been severed. I'm not asking you tonight, are you living a Christian life? What I'm asking you is this, where are you getting it? Where are you getting it? From what source are you? Isaiah 29, 13 is a very deep verse to me, but this is what he said. And their fear toward me was taught by the precept of men. In other words... You fear God because men taught you to fear God. You don't fear God because you broke through and found the Lord rich and special to your life personally. I think about what the Apostle Paul said, and I, I'm, I'm, I haven't got down to the meat of the thing yet, but stay with me. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Here's what Paul said. Be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. Now, you little young converts, now you do what I do. You pray like I pray. You read the Word of God like I do. You tell others about Christ like I do. You stay away from other things like I do. Come on, follow me. Be ye followers of me as I also am of Christ. And later, here's what he said, Galatians 4:19. My little children, of whom I travail again in birth until Christ be formed in you. Wait a minute. They were already saved. Well, Paul knew that. But Christ needed to be formed in them. There came a point, he said, I don't want you just following me anymore. I want you to break through and walk with God for yourself. And that is a little phrase I hope you'll never forget after tonight. You need to break through and walk with God. For, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if every young person in this room went to their parents uh, tomorrow and said, Mom and Dad, scare you to death if they did, but hear the conclusion of the matter. Mom and Dad, your standards are not mine anymore. Your convictions are not mine anymore. Now, mine are the same as yours. But I found from the Word of God what I should do. I found from the Word of God how I should dress. I found from the Word of God the standard of living and music and separation that I should have. And I'm not doing this because you're doing it. And I'm not doing it because you've led me to do it. And I'm not doing it because you've taught me to do it. I'm doing it because I see now what God wants for my life. And by the way, that's the goal that every one of us parents have for our children. I, I didn't raise my children with the ultimate goal in mind to get them to do exactly like I wanted them to do it, march like I wanted them to march. My ultimate goal was to bring them to that point where they broke through and walked with God for their sake. And you know why? Because I knew I wouldn't be there someday. Children grow up fast. To children you don't. Takes you for, you know, I told somebody, it took me all my life to be 21, but what happened after that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. At some point, you need to break through and walk with God for yourself. James 1.21, watch it now. Receive with meekness the engrafted word, not the heard word, not even the preached word, and we should receive it, but receive with meekness the engrafted word without giving you a lesson on how you can graft one plant into another and have three kinds of apples growing on one apple tree. Without going into all of that, you can engraft something into the very life stream of a plant. And the Word of God needs to be engrafted very right into our thoughts, our minds. It needs to become a part of me. Uh, you remember Jeremiah, he said, I said I'd speak no more in his name. 
I'm tired of it. I'm tired of, I'm tired of people wiping their feet on me. I'm tired of preaching like a wild man and nobody listening. He said, I said I'll speak no more in his name. But his word was as a fire shut up in my bones. It was what was on the inside that made a difference. Where are you plugged in? Where are you plugged in? You go out on a cold Iowa morning, and I'm sure it's the same here. I mean, it's eight below zero on the thermometer with a 25-mile-an-hour north wind dropping that chill factor down to some ungodly degree, 42 below or whatever. And you reach and turn the key on that car, and instead of, here's what you hear. Click, 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 click. Uh-oh, I got trouble. And you look up and somebody left the dome light on all night. Now, you try that in July, and you can start your car, but don't try that in January when the chill factor is 40 below zero. And you think, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? Hey, hey, Pastor, do you have some jumper cables? Yeah, I need, I need a jump. So he comes over, we raise the hoods, and he puts the jumper cable on the battery. That's what I was doing with these jumper cables, by the way. And um, you come up here and help me, Pastor. He's never heard this sermon. He has no clue of what he's going to do here, but I'll just tell you what to do. You hook this to your battery, and I'm going to hook these to my battery. And then you know what the pastor says? He said, now, wait a minute. Don't start that car yet. Let me start mine first. And he fires up his engine, runs those RPMs up, you know. And he said, hold it. Wait just a minute. I sat here patiently and wait. He said, okay, now hit it. And I turned the key. I said, man, thank you, thank you, thank you. I've got power to spare. That's what I think. But you let me turn that car off. And I'm as in bad a shape as I was before I started it. I'm going to have to run a while and generate my own power and let that battery build up. You see, little did I realize, unless I was smart enough to know, that I was borrowing all my power from somebody else. And as long as I'm connected, I'm okay. But I can't carry him around with me and connect jumper cables every time I stop at the mall and stop at the gas station and stop here and yonder. There comes a point in my life where I'm going to have to generate my own electricity, my own power. Thank you, preacher. Just lay them down. I'm done with it. Look at this. Look at this. Three boys on the inner circle of our youth group. And your pastor was a member of my church and attended my church for some time, and he knows we had a super youth group in a very going, exciting church. Three boys, the center of everything. They never missed a soul winning. They were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They were, uh, they were homeschooled. Uh, or Christian school. Now, wait a minute. Let me think. We had, we had a bunch of both in our church. I'm trying to think. But anyway, Christian education. One night, those three boys disappeared. Took them three or four nights to find them. One of the parents found them. They were in an apartment up at Kelowna, Iowa, 20 miles to the north of Washington. He got some leads, found out where they were, and he walked in where those three boys were. Now, these three boys' parents were teachers. One of them, I know, taught in the Christian school down at Fairfield. Uh, they, were, they sang in our choir. They were ushers. They were inner circle people. And the boys were faithful. 
And this parent walked in on these three boys, and they had drank some beer and done some other stupid things. And when he walked in and caught them, he wasn't angry, but he was so confused. And he looked at them and said, boys, what in this world could have ever possessed you to do such a thing? And one of them answered the question. Well, I'll tell you exactly why we did it, he said. We did it because we got sick and tired of being who we were not. And they told the truth. They got sick and tired of being who they were not. They were walking the walk. They were talking the talk. They showed up at the right places. They did the right thing. Kept the right kind of haircut, the right kind of language. They'd go on soul winning visitation, pass out tracks, tell us about Christ. They were in the program. They were doing all the things. But it's not who they really were inside. And they were drawing all of that from their parents and drawing all of that from their church and drawing all of that from their preacher. And that's good. But there comes a time the preacher's not going to be there. It's not going to be there. Uh, It's so dangerous. I'm plowing corn patches tonight in the best of homes in this building. The best. Genesis 37, verse number 5. Potiphar's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Come by me. Now, this woman obviously was a beautiful woman. After all, it was Potiphar's wife. You know she wasn't so ugly. She had to sneak up on the glass to get a drink of water. You know, I mean, you know she had to have been beautiful. It was Potiphar's wife. She unleashes all of her powers on a 17-year-old boy and begins to pressure him into living immoral with her. But Joseph refused to be even anywhere around her. He said, how can I do this great weakness of sin against God? Do you think Joseph said to her, hey, woman, I can't do this. You don't know who my dad was. My dad was Jacob. He saw the angels going up and down the ladder. He's a patriarch. I mean, it was Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob, my daddy, and then me, Joseph. You don't know who my daddy was. If you knew who my daddy was, you wouldn't even be trying to leave me. Uh, 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 uh. It don't matter who your daddy is. That is not strong enough to keep you going. You're going to be at a place of temptation, young person, beyond the greatest parent that ever lived on planet Earth. You're going to be at a place of temptation out yonder, beyond the reach of the most powerful sermon you ever heard. I wouldn't spend my time trying to inspire you to live for God. Because that inspiration fades out as soon as you walk out of this building and mingle with a world out there that's unfriendly toward your Savior. That inspiration that I can dynamically motivate in you is not worth a dime. It'll just fade out like the dew in the morning. But if I can motivate you to break through and walk with God for yourself, so when you become unplugged from the preacher and unplugged from the mama and daddy and unplugged from your education, if you have Christian education or your school, whatever it is, when you get unplugged, you won't be unplugged from your source. Where are you plugged in? Where are you plugged in? Now think about it. I want you to give it some thought tonight. 
In Jeremiah 52, verse 28 and 30, according to the Bible, when the king took young people, Jewish young people, from Jerusalem down into Babylon, when Jerusalem was captured, and they were taken captive, according to the Bible, 4,600 were taken down there. Did you know that all of them ate the king's meat and drank the king's wine. All of them bowed down to the idol, to our knowledge, except four. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And do you think they didn't bow down because they wasn't under the pressure of the others? Do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't say, hey, look, we can't do this. We were taught against this kind of stuff. We can't drink that wine. We can't bow down to idols. We were taught that it's wrong. Do you think that kept them safe? No. What daddy believed and what mama believed and what the priest believed and what he taught up there in Jerusalem had become an intricate part of who they were. An intricate part of who they were. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 30 and verse number 6, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. i got news for you. You may not know it yet, but you're going to come to a place of depression and discouragement beyond the greatest sermon you ever heard your pastor preach, beyond the greatest inspirational, exciting service revival you were ever in. And when you come to that place, it's going to depend on where you're plugged in that tells us whether you survive or not. Mount Rainer National Park, when you go through there, the deer will come up and almost eat out of your hand. But the forest rangers beg you, please don't feed the deer. And you think it's because they're afraid that you're going to poison the deer or something. No, 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 that's not it. If you'll ask one of them, they'll tell you why. They'll say, please don't feed the deer. I know they're semi-domestic because they, they just come up and people keep handing them stuff out the window. It's fun to feed the deer. He said, please don't do it because he said, here's why. This is tourist season. This is April through September. But in January, when the snow's 22 inches deep and there's no vegetation, Instead of being on the back 40 with their foot digging down to find a root to eat and stay alive, they're going to be standing out here freezing to death waiting for you to give them something, and you're not going to be here. You're not going to be here to give it to them. You hand feed them, and they'll eat out of your hand as long as you keep feeding it to them, but they won't survive January. Leave them alone. Let them find their own food. Let me tell you one, it'll blow you slam away. Years ago in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, the seagulls started dying. Dying. I mean, the beach was laying full of them. And the environmentalists and animal worshipers were having seizures trying to figure out who's killing all these seagulls. So they went out and gathered them up and ran them through the lab. Here's the funny thing. Seagulls, among all creatures, have an abundance of food all the time. Every time the tide goes out, the beach is left full of it. Out here at the big lake, they have enough musils and whatever they find on the sand, they, and they eat anything. They're worse than a buzzard. They eat anything. And every time the tide goes out, there it is laying, and they just feed. And they could not understand they had an abundance of food, but they ran them through the 
lab and found out they were starving to death. They were dying of malnutrition. That's just a true story. They couldn't figure it. It don't make sense. And not only that, to confuse the issue further, down the seaboard, all the way down to Savannah and all the way up, uh, all the way to the Keys and all the way up to Savannah, the seagulls with the same amount of food supply were proliferating greatly. They couldn't figure it. Don't make sense. Why are these seagulls dying? And then they found the answer. For years, there had been a shrimp port there. And these shrimping boats would come in, and when they did, they'd filter through to take out the shrimp and what they wanted and dump everything else overboard, hundreds of pounds of it. And they, they came in about the same time every day. And when they did, the sky got black with seagulls. I mean, just got black. And thousands of seagulls just converged on hundreds of pounds of stuff. I mean, they said you black the sun out. And in a matter of a couple of hours, they would consume hundreds of pounds of this stuff. And that worked real good until another shrimping company down the seacoast put them out of business. Competition caused them to close. And when they closed, they discovered they had raised a generation of seagulls that did not know how to find their own food. They had been hand-fed so long. Beaches laying full of food, but they didn't know where it was. They'd been, they'd been hand-fed so long they could not fend for themselves. And you know, I'm for the, I'm for the Christian school. And I'm for homeschooling. We, we had Christian education for all seven of ours all the way through. And that's the only thing I really believe in. I believe in Christian education for your children on Sunday school on Sunday morning and Monday school on Monday morning. And I won't take that any further at this time. But I'll promise you this right now. I believe in Christian education. But young people, listen to me. Whether you're in a Christian school or homeschool, if that be your case, you are so taught what to do. You're spoon-fed. You have to walk the walk, talk the talk. But what you don't know is there's a world out there that's not sympathetic to the way you're living. And you're going to get unplugged from mom and dad because you're going to get married. Or you're going to go to college. Or for whatever reason, you're going to leave home and you're gonna, we're going to find out where you were plugged in. Just like those three boys, so inner circle in our youth group who ran away. They, they were plugged into the church and plugged into parents and plugged into the Christian school, but they were not plugged into God. Where are you plugged in? It's a somber and serious thought. It's one you need to deal with tonight, and here's why. Because, and by the way, many, many parents are the same way. You come, you go out there in the world and you run out of gas. You come in here to get filled up. And I'm for that. But let me tell you something. The, if the only spiritual truth you get is what you get when you come here three times a week and listen to your pastor, you're not going to survive in days to come. If you cannot get along with God, if I ask you to stand up one by one and tell me what you've got out of this Bible in your personal Bible reading in the last, in the last seven days, what would you say? What could you say? Man, I found this verse right here, and I've been thinking about it all week. And man, it really, if you can't say that, you are plugged into the, oh, the pastor brings such wonderful message, and it blesses my heart. I'm glad it does. That's what we're here for, but I'm telling you something. Listen to me. If you can't find your own food, you're going to be history. You're going to be history. Where are you plugged in? 
Where are you plugged? You see, some of you, and I'm not going to do a survey here now, but some of you, you're, you're sheltered, and we're glad you are. We believe in that. But there comes a point you're going to have to break through and walk with God. You see, you never had to face some of the things that my wife and I had to face in school. My wife was on the pep team, and the girls said, come on, Rhonda, we've all lost it. Get in the program, meaning we've lost our purity. See, you never had to face that, but you will. You will. You see, you never had to face it when the, when the macho on the football team, they were talking, says, hey, Rhonda's still a virgin. You never had to face the thing where he said, I'll get her. He was so high and mighty, he thought every girl ought to fall out as soon as he walked through. He said, I'll get her. But thank God he didn't get her. And I'm going to tell you something right now. There's a world out there waiting for you, and you don't have enough power to stand up against it unless you're plugged into God instead of plugged into Abraham or plugged into me or plugged into your pastor or plugged into your teacher or plugged into whoever. Where are you plugged in? Are you plugged into people? Are you plugged into God? Real quickly now, I got one that really changed my life more than anything, and that's number two. Are you plugged into spiritual gifts? Or are you plugged into spirituality? Which one? You say, what are you talking about? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Find your place. It's worth your time. It's worth my time. I don't have you turn to all the passages, but you need to find this. 1 and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. And find your place quickly. Uh, you'll find it right after the book of Romans. Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. That'll help you get, get there as quick as you can. Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 4. Here's what Paul said to the church at Corinth, to the Christians at Corinth, to the believers at Corinth. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you're enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge. Now, the word not utterance there was a, was a gift that was given to Israel. And we all are given knowledge in this age, but some had the gift of knowledge, some had the gift of utterance, some had the gift of helps, some had the gift of tongues, some had the gift of healing. And all these were sign gifts given to Israel. When Israel as a nation rejected their God and it was over with, these sign gifts disappeared. We still can utter things, we still can know things. But this is something different here. And if you go over to chapter 12, 13, and 14, you see all these gifts in operation. But notice he said in verse number 7, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look up at Pastor Brown. He said, you've got all the spiritual gifts, every one of them, and they're in operation. And you can see them in the church as they were in operation. He said, you've got all the spiritual gifts, and he turns right around and says this, I hear there's contingents among you. I hear there's fussing among you. Look at the very next verse here. This is what it said. Uh, he said, uh, So that you come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then I want you to notice two, three verses later, verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same things and there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chilo, that there are contentions among you. You're fussing with each other. You're acting like babies. Turn the page to chapter 3. And verse number one, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. Verse three, for are ye, for ye are yet carnal. Last part of verse number four, are ye not carnal? Well, how carnal were they? Look across the page in chapter five, verse one. It is reported commonly that there's fornication among you. And such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Hey, they were living with their mama-in-law. Things the heathen weren't doing and getting drunk at the Lord's table. He said, you're carnal. You're living in fornication. You're carnal. And I said, whoa, Paul, hold the phone. Hold the phone. Whoa, stop, stop, Paul. Stop, stop. You just got done saying. They had all the gifts and they came behind in no spiritual gift. Now you turn right around and say this carnal is the devil. Which is it? And I saw a truth that changed my life. And here's the truth. Both were true. They were running at an all-time high in their spiritual gifts. And they were running at an all-time low in their spirituality. Because spiritual gifts and spirituality are two entirely separate things. Spiritual, spiritual gifts is what God gives you. Spirituality is what you give God. Spiritual gifts are open and public. You're looking at my spiritual gift right now. But you cannot see my spirituality. Sometimes we misjudge spiritual gifts to be spirituality. But they're not. They're too, they should be the same, but often they're not. And just because a person has a spiritual gift does not mean that they have spirituality. Spiritual gifts and spirituality. Think about it. Give, give it some thought tonight. Where are you plugged in? Are you plugged into your spiritual gift? Um, one day, Reldon Gerard, a deacon in my church, knocked on my door. I was at home. He said, Preacher, before I tell you what I came to tell you, who cut your European mountain ash down? I said, what do you mean who cut my European mountain there? He said, well, somebody cut it off. It's right out in your backyard. Beautiful tree. I inherited it with that house. Ran up here 25 feet tall. It was just full of berries that were bright orange in the fall. It was an ornamental tree. They're expensive. You buy one, you'll pay a pretty penny for it. And, uh, but I inherited it with the house. I loved that tree. It was a centerpiece in my backyard. And there it was. Somebody cut it off flesh with the ground. Flat yard. I said, Reldon, why didn't they throw a brick through my window? I could have fixed that. I can't put that tree back. I was sick. I walked out. I said, what did they use to cut it down? And I got down on my knees. You could have ran a rotary lawnmower over the stump of that thing and never touched a thing. That's how flesh it was cut off with the ground. And I looked, and I could not believe what I saw. The outer circumference of that tree, about an inch and a half to two inches in, all the way around the, the tree itself. The part that takes the moisture and the nutrients and the minerals from the earth up that tree 
to produce all those beautiful leaves and all those clusters of berries that are bright orange in the fall. That part of the tree was perfect and doing its job perfect. And there was that beautiful tree because the outer circumference was drawing everything it needed to draw to produce everything that tree had to produce, and it looked great. But I could not believe what I saw from an inch and a half in onto the center. A worm of some kind had got in there and bred and multiplied and had eaten the guts out of that tree, the inside out of that tree, all the way up and down. And it was doty. It was like um, mushrooms. It was doty. And one night when a little wind came, and it really wasn't much of a wind either, the thing just popped off because it had been continually rotting from the inside. The outer circumference pictures our spiritual gift. That's the fruit that we produce. That's what you hear when my wife sings or when I preach. That's what you hear when the instrumentalists play or the, or the choir sings or the musicians play. That's not your spirituality. That's your spiritual gift. We can see that. We can know that. We can appreciate that. But that in no wise proves your spirituality. You see, Pastor, here's what I've seen before. Here is my spiritual gift. Here is my spirituality. My spirituality should be at least as high as my spiritual gift, right? But spiritual gifts are easy. I don't find it hard to preach. I find it fun to preach. Preaching is the, is the cherry on the top of my life. I just love to preach. I mean, I have a good time. Uh, listen, if he, he, he called me at 3 in the morning and said, Brother Brown, I got a crowd down here on the street corner, and God laid on my heart to have you come down and preach. My, I'd jump out of bed. My wife would have to remind me to put my britches on. I mean, I'd take off. I, I, I love it. I love it. I love to preach. Yeah, and she knows that you're laughing, but she's not. She knows. I, I get excited. I'm just... and. Uh, and I, mean, I love it. I'll preach at the drop of a hat. And if you don't drop the hat, I'll drop it just so I get to preach. You know? I love to preach. This is easy. But this is my spirituality and this is hard. This is the part where I've got to purge myself and discipline myself and control myself. This is the part where I've got to say to my wife or anybody else, honey, I'm sorry. I misspoke. I was ill. I shouldn't have spoke that way. Please forgive me. I hate that. I don't want to do that. I hate that. I can't stand it. I don't want to apologize to anybody about anything because I am flesh and I'm self-willed. But if I'm going to walk with God and have spirituality, I've got to apologize and I've got to discipline myself and I've got to kick myself in the britches and make myself do what's right because I want to keep my spirituality at least as high as my spiritual. But, but because this is easy and this is hard, this is Wayne's easier. And here's where I've seen preachers go wrong. Here's their spiritual gift. I'm thinking now of a man, you probably hit your mind. Very large ministry in this part of the country. The largest. And here was his spiritual gift. And it was in operation. But his spirituality had begun to wane. Nobody could see it. No more than I could see the inside of that tree. Nobody could see it. But it was rottening, going down. Now watch this. Stay with me. And so because this is easy and this is hard, this starts down. But I look at that and I say, no, Lord, 
I'm not where I used to be spiritually. But then I look back at my spiritual gift and I say, the crowds are still coming. I'm still getting the invitations to go preach in churches. And when I preach, people are still getting saved. Somebody got saved here this morning. An adult got saved here this morning. I mean, after all, I couldn't be so bad. If I was too bad, I, could, I wouldn't be used of God this way. I mean, I'm still being used of God. I can still play the instruments, you might say. I can still, I can still sing. I can still uh, do the things I'm doing around here. That's your spiritual gift. But that does not mean you're spiritual. But when I take my eyes off my spirituality and put them on my spiritual gift, right then I'm history. Right then. Hey, pastor, watch this. I have seen preachers, their spiritual gift was way down here. But their spirituality was way up here. I mean, they pastor a little church up in the mountains at the forks of the Big Sandy River. Little clapboard church. They run about 25 in their church, and they've been there for years faithful. And they cross those foot logs and reach those mountain people for God and just stay faithful. Their spiritual gifts way down here. Your pastor would never invite them here to preach in a revival. They're not colorful. They're faithful, but they're not colorful. They're, they're true, but they're not colorful. They love people. They're good pastor, but they're not colorful. So their spiritual gifts way down here, but their spirituality is way up here. But then I've known preachers. Their spiritual gift was way up here, and their spirituality was way down here. I booked a man years ago to preach in my church, and, I mean, he was a big-name preacher. And I was bragging to a preacher. I said, guess who we've got coming holding a revival in our church? And I called his name. He said, that's great. Boy, he's a preacher, and you, you, he'll preach the house down, and you'll enjoy him if you can stand his dirty jokes. And sure enough, he came. And we came out of a restaurant, and he was telling a joke and used a bad word. And I said, Brother, God bless you. Stop. This small town, i got to live here after you're gone. I never invited him back. Because his spirituality was way down here. His spiritual gift was way up here. Just because you usher in the church, just because you're a deacon here, or just because you sing here, or just because you drive a bus here, or just because you run the sound here, or just because you do anything here, does not make you spiritual. That's your spiritual. By the way, this explains Samson. When Samson came out of the city, he took the gate of the city, bars and all. They said it weighed, what is it, two tons? And he pulled it out of the ground, pulled the post out of the ground, and laid tonnage of steel on his back and walked to the top of a hill and laid it down. And there's not one shred of evidence in all of the Bible that Samson had any more muscles than I've got, and that ain't much. <laughs> and if he had been Hercules, he couldn't have done that. The great weightlifters of the world that compete worldwide, they don't do that. Pull it, bars and all out of the ground. You know how he did that? He did that because he had God's power on him. He did that by the power of God. He did that because he had a gift, a power God gave him. Guess when he did it? After he got up out of bed, spending the night with a harlot. And he walked out and he pulled those bars up. After spending the night with a harlot, his spiritual gift was running at an all-time high. His spirituality was running at an all-time low. Because spiritual gifts and spirituality is two different things. Somebody said one time, Brother Brown, you're trying to get in the hall of fame. I said, heavens no, Betsy, I'm trying to stay, in the, I'm trying to stay out of the hall of shame. 
I spend most of my time working on my spirituality. I had directly, I have not studied three minutes on the sermon you're listening to right now. For tonight, at least, I preached it in the past. I've not spent three minutes working, preparing for what you're listening to. But I won't even begin to tell you how much time I've spent preparing myself spiritually for this. And my wife knows, or at least she's got a good idea, how often I absent myself out of the room and how long I stay gone, found a place of prayer here and yonder. She knows, you don't know, and I'm not going to tell you because that's personal. But I'll promise you this, I spend a whole lot more time on this than I do this. Oh, yeah. You know why? Because I don't want to be history. <laughs> Kenny Graham, preacher friend of mine, he said, Brother Brown, I went to a great man of God that built a church to 1,500. And I learned later who it was. It was a man that I had preached for me when Dr. Curtis Hudson had to cancel on a Friday night. I called this man in to preach, and he preached the house down in Dr. Curtis Hudson's absence. But he said, I went to him, and I asked him, I said, Brother, I've always emulated your your walk with God. And he said, I was wondering this. He said, I was wondering, um, what do you do in your personal devotions? He said, Kenny said, I have my personal time with God, but I'm not happy with it. What do you do? And he looked at him. Kenny told me this himself. He said, he looked at him and said, Kenny, I know what you're talking about, son. And I've been there. I've had that walk with God. And I got up of a morning and got with that Bible and got with prayer. But he said, Kenny, you got to understand, we're in a building program. My phone's ringing at 7 o'clock in the morning. It's still ringing at 10 o'clock at night. He said, honestly, Kenny, I've not had time for it lately. And then Kenny, with sad eyes, looked at me, and he said, Pastor, need I tell you that man's not even in the ministry today? And let me add one to it. Need I tell you that that man's not even with his wife today? Because I don't care how big you are and how much you, your spiritual gift is. If you don't work on your spirituality, you are going to become history. You're going to become history. Where are you plugged in? Are you plugged into people? Or are you plugged into God? Are you plugged into spiritual gifts? Are you plugged into spirituality? Hey, kids, I let, as far as I know, every young person that's played every instrument on this platform since I've been here today, as far as I know, they're all real and living the life. I, but I don't know that. But I do know one thing. Just because you play those instruments don't prove anything about you. We can hire lost people to come in here and do that. That don't prove anything about you. We cannot look and see what you're doing and judge your spirituality by that. We might could talk to your brothers and sisters at home and get a better idea. Amen. We might could talk to your moms and dads and get a better idea. And the same goes for you parents who pray so piously in church and serve so faithful and pious in church. That don't prove your spirituality. We might could talk to your children in the privacy of their home and get an idea about where your spirituality lies. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't read books by charismatics. I don't read books by neo-evangelicals. And I dead sure don't read books by charismatics. But Jim Baker wrote a book called I Was Wrong. I didn't read it. Somebody else read it, and they were telling me this. He said, when we started off, Tammy Faye, Tammy Faye Baker, said she wore no makeup, 
She, he said we were old school Foursquare, Pentecostal, holiness, Foursquare. It said Tammy Faye wore no makeup. She couldn't cut her hair. Her hair was long. No makeup. Can you imagine Tammy Faye Baker without makeup? Did you know they, they, one day they chiseled all that makeup off of Tammy Faye Baker? You know what they found under there? Jimmy Hoffa, he was under there the whole time. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and, and he said, Tammy, Tammy Faye never wore makeup. She wore long hair. She wore a dress down to her ankles. And he said, she had to do it that way. If not, she'd go to hell. But he said, we, we were saved. They didn't have assurance, but they were saved. And he said, we prayed that God would bless us, and he did. And he said, the crowd started coming. But he said, as the crowd started coming, we had to do something to keep the crowds coming. And we had to do something to make the crowds a little bigger. So we jived the music up a little more. And then in time, Tammy Faye started wearing makeup. And then she started more and more and more. And he said, we started whipping it up more to get more crowds in and to maintain the crowds. And here's what he said. Now, he's never heard this sermon, but here's what he said. He said, you know, he said, at some point, our focus shifted from pleasing God to ministry. It shifted from spirituality to spiritual gift. Now, he didn't use those words, but that's what he meant. And friend, I'm going to tell you something. It's an easy trap to get into. It's so easy to get in the form and think you're spiritual because you're here. You're not spiritual because of what we're looking at. You're spiritual because of what you do in your private life when we don't see it. When we don't see it, where are you plugged in? Where are you plugged in? Yeah, it's the most deceptive thing in the world. A great preacher in this part of the country, pastor a Baptist church running thousands, and he fell. And a preacher, a young preacher called me and said, Pastor Brown, what am I going to do? I said, what's your problem? He said, my hero fell. What am I going to do? I said, brother, let me tell you something. I'm always sad when any man of God falls, but I'm not plugged into that man. I'm plugged into Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, we're going to have to get plugged into God instead of plugged into our spiritual gifts. Are you plugged into people? Are you plugged into God? Are you plugged into spiritual gifts? Are you plugged into spirituality? And third, and I'm done with this, are you plugged into God or are you plugged into a false profession? I wouldn't give you a dime for a preacher that'd come into this church and confuse you about whether you're saved or not. Our job is to teach people to hold fast the profession of their faith without wavering. But there is such a thing as being in church and having made a profession of faith but never had a possession. You never personally received Christ as Savior. And the reason I know it, it's such a thing is because I was one of them. Matthew seven twenty one says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter in the kingdom of heaven. Many shall say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me. I never knew you. I preached before I was saved, actually. And so forth. Taught a Sunday school class in an independent Baptist church before I was saved. I knew I was lost. 
I thought maybe if I just kept working, things would get better, or I'd come to the assurance of salvation, but I had no salvation. I was lost, and I knew I was lost. I wasn't plugged into God. Years ago, when people traveled by train, a man who traveled by train all the time took a friend that had never traveled by train and took him down to take a train trip. And when he brought his friend down there, he was so full of himself and his knowledge of train travel, he was bragging in front of his friend. But they stuck up a sign that says, please wait for the conductor before getting on the train car. So he said to his friend, ah, that's for people that don't travel. I know what I'm doing. I, I travel all the time on these trains. He said, come on, we'll get on. They got on the car, sat down. In a little bit, the conductor stepped up on the car. And with a very kind expression on his face, he said, fellas, I hate to inconvenience you, but you're going to have to get off of this car and get on the one right in front of you. Well, it insulted the ego of this fat-headed fellow, and he said, Mr. Conductor, may I ask you a question? He said, you may. He said, in this train car, as good as the one that's in front of us, you're asking us to get on? He said, yes, sir. He said, doesn't this car ride as good as that train car in front of us? He said, yes, sir. He said, in the service as good on this car as it is the one in front of us? He said, you got a point. He said, in this car decorated as nicely as the one in front of us? He said, you know, you're really getting some good points. He said, well, would you please tell me why we're required to get off of this car and get on the one in front of us? And with a slight grin, the conductor said, because, sir... This car is not connected to anything going anywhere. <laughs> in my life as good as your life, maybe better. Don't I serve the Lord as faithfully as you do? You may serve him. But when Jesus comes, there's not as many people going to be living town as you think. Nobody can see eternal life. Everybody can have it, but nobody can see it. You can know when you got it. But you can't see it. And I cannot see who was saved. I had a preacher friend who was running 3,000 in his church. It wasn't my pastor. It wasn't Bobby Roberts. or somebody else. And he said, it was a Sunday morning. We had a crowd and people coming forward to be saved. And they were dealing with them. Watch it, watch it, watch it. And he said, all of a sudden, my wife is standing in front of the pulpit. And I thought she was going to tell me about some woman needed to be saved or somebody needed to be dealt with. And so he said, I stepped around and I said, honey, what, what do you need? She looked up at him and said, I'm not going to hell for you or nobody else. He said, I just backed up and said, what? She said, I'm not going to hell for you or nobody else. He said, what are you talking about, woman? She said, I'm lost. All these years I've been lost. I've never been saved. He said, it so blew my mind. I couldn't think of anything to say. And finally, I just said, well, get down there on the altar and get saved then. And she did and got saved. Being a member of the church, coming to church, serving the Lord. You know what? When my wife got saved, she was raised in church. When my wife got saved, before she got saved, she told her husband, I don't think I'm saved. You know what her saved husband said to her, Rhonda? If anybody is saved, you're saved. If anybody's going to heaven, it's you, Rhonda. The way she taught, the way she worked, the things she did for God, but she was lost and she knew it. And she knelt down by a chair at, at her home when her husband was at work one night and she invited Jesus into her heart and she got saved. 
and she's been living for the Lord ever since. Where are you plugged in? Are you plugged into people? Are you plugged into God? Are you plugged into spiritual gifts? Are you plugged into spirituality? Are you plugged into God? Or are you just plugged into a false profession? I cannot answer these questions for you. Only you can answer these questions. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Nobody looking around. I wonder whether our heads bowed and eyes closed. And listen carefully now. This is search your heart time. This is search your soul time. This is not thinking about who else maybe needs to get right with God tonight. You think about your own self. You deal with your own self. How many are in this room right now and you say, Pastor Brown, I know I'm going to heaven, but at some point in that sermon, God spoke to my heart and And I, God convicted me at some point in that sermon as a child of God. And I want to raise my hand right now to say, pray for me. I'm not going to lie to you and I'm not going to lie to the Holy Spirit of God. God spoke to me somewhere down through that sermon. Pray for me. Get your hand up. Hold it up. Hold it up. All over the room. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 or more. How about it? Hold your hands up. Thank you. You can take your hands down. Now, I wonder... How many folks are here? And you'd say, Pastor Brown, I wish I could say I know for sure I'm going to heaven when I die. But I'd lie if I said I knew that. It could be you're saved and just doubting. Or it could be you've never been saved. But whatever it is, you dead sure need to get it settled tonight. I wonder how many are here and you say, I don't know for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven. I want you to pray for me. Hold your hand up. Get it up. Get it up right now. Everybody, hold it. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. God bless you. Somebody else, slip it up right now. Slip it up. Thank you. You may take it down. Is there somebody else? Somebody else. Here's a lady, an adult lady. Anybody else? Quickly, right now. Quickly. Now, ma'am, it could be you've never been saved, or it could be you have been saved and are doubting, and I can't answer which one, but I will answer this. When we stand with people's heads bowed and eyes closed and we invite Christians to come here and kneel, I want you to slip out and I'll meet you down here. We'll have a lady talk with you and you can get it settled whether you're really going to heaven or not. And by the way, a hundred years from tonight, it's not going to matter what people thought about you coming forward. A hundred years from tonight, you'll be glad you got the matter settled. Heavenly Father, work now in this invitation. In Jesus' name, our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. When you hear the music, I want everybody to stand. That's right.